Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to a new edition of New Books in Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian Studies. This is your host, Luke Rodheffer, and joining me on the line from Washington, D.C. is Biliana Lilly, a consultant and specialist on Eastern Europe. I'll be talking with her today about her recently released book on Russian policies toward ballistic missile defense. So, Biliana, before we start talking about your book, could you give us a little bit more information about your background how you became interested in this topic and studying Russia and the former Soviet Union? Sure, look. First, thanks for having me. So I was born and raised in Bulgaria, and uh, while I was in high school, I was actively involved in the activities of the Bulgarian Red Cross and UNESCO. And for these organizations, I managed to spend a few summers abroad at different international conferences and summer camps. And I decided that I wanted to pursue a career with an international focus, but I wasn't sure uh, what this would be yet. Um, therefore, in the last 10 years, I studied and worked in different European countries before moving to the United States. And I decided to primarily focus and build my expertise uh, on international security and more recently on Russian and East European politics. Um, I was, for example, a trainee at the Bulgarian diplomatic mission uh, to the United Nations in Geneva, Switzerland. And I represented Bulgaria at the Conference on Disarmament at the United Nations and also at a variety of EU consultation sessions and uh, other um, UN conferences that were focused on cluster munitions and weaponization of space as well as nuclear disarmament. I also, when I was uh, in Geneva, I also worked for a think tank called the Small Arms Survey. And there I conducted research on topics uh, including intergovernmental weapons trade, and non-state actors, as well as impacts of violence and gangs. Um, then I moved to the UK, to the UK, where I uh, did my master's degree in Russian and East European studies at the University of Oxford. I also worked as a project executive at the Department of Management and Analysis at Oxford, and I've also been working as an external expert for Oxford Analytica, which is a consulting company. And I've written for them occasionally reports on a variety of issues uh, such as um, energy security and different NATO policies, as well as uh, sanctions and the impact of sanctions against Russia on the Black Sea economy. And I have recently moved to the United States and, as you mentioned, I'm now based in Washington, D.C. Okay. And can you talk a bit about the, the origin of the book? that you recently wrote and kind of what type of sources you use, interviews, primary sources, things like that? Sure. Um, so originally, um, I decided to explore the reasons for Russia's position on missile defense um, as a part of my thesis at Oxford University. And the thesis received very positive reviews and I was encouraged to publish it. So I continued to conduct research on the issue and turned it eventually into a book that Lexington published. Um, regarding sources, I've used a combination of primary and secondary sources. For example, I read all speeches in Russian that were given by Vladimir Putin since 1999 that mentioned missile defense. 
I also read all speeches given by uh, Medvedev when he was prime minister, first president and then prime minister, where he also talks about missile defense. I also um, examined the coverage of missile defense in 10 of the major Russian media outlets, and I chose them on the basis of their uh, reported connections, strong connections to the Kremlin. Um, I have also examined publications in Russian um, military journals since 1995. Um, in terms of interviews, I also visited NATO headquarters a few times in Brussels, and I had the opportunity to speak to a few of NATO's senior um, officials that were directly involved in the negotiations on missile defense between the members of the alliance as well as between NATO and Russia, and I gained some really interesting insights from those conversations that I have included in the book as well. Um, also, I had the chance to go to Russia last year, and I met with a few of Russia's senior um, political and military officials that were involved in um, the policy on missile defense in Europe. I, for example, spoke with um, Army General Yuri Bolyevsky, who was in charge of Russia's general staff. I also had the opportunity to speak with Deputy um, Minister of Defense Anatoly Antonov, who has actually himself published a book on nuclear issues. And I remember I actually spent uh, last 4th of July in the um, um, Russian Defense Ministry actually speaking to him. I didn't really have the opportunity to celebrate much, unfortunately. Um, in terms of secondary sources, the book doesn't look only um, at security-related issues, but it also examines uh, U.S.-Russian relations as well as NATO-Russian relations and Russia's domestic and regional politics. And therefore, I have referenced a lot of academics and practitioners who have written on those issues in the last 15 years. For example, I've referenced publications by um, Robert Legvold and uh, Lilia Shestova, Pavel Podzik, Jeffrey Mankov, Stephen Pfeiffer, Dmitry Trenin, and many more. Okay. And in order to give our readers a couple of kind of general background issues, what was the original Bush administration proposal for European missile defense? Uh, sure. Um, in 2007, uh, the Bush administration officially proposed to expand uh, the U.S. national missile defense system. Uh, until 2007, U.S. national missile defense had two bases, and they were both on U.S. territory. One of them was in California, and the other one was in Alaska. And in 2007, Bush proposed the deployment of a third side in Europe to protect against future missiles from Iran and other states. And the plan envisions uh, the deployment of two radar stations in two different European countries, as well as 10 interceptors. Uh, there was also um, uh, going to be a command and control center, most probably in Germany. The 10 radars, uh, the, the 10 interceptors were about to be stationed in Poland. One radar station was uh, about to be deployed in the Czech Republic, and one was about to be deployed in a country closer to Iran, but the name of that country was not specified. Okay. And what were the particular declines in Russia's conventional capabilities following the end of the Cold War that has made it more dependent on its nuclear arsenal as a way of projecting military power? That's a very interesting question, and I touch upon this in the book as well. Um, so in the post-Cold uh, post War decline of Russia's conventional capabilities is pretty significant. Um, to give you an example, in the 1990s, uh, as a result of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, the number of Russian aircraft decreased from about 7,000 to about 2,500. Russia lost most of its submarines. Um, it had about 300 in the end of the Cold War, and they decreased to about 80. And Russia also lost most of its tanks. 
they decreased from about 65,000 to about 7,000. Um, uh, all throughout the period of the uh, po all throughout the post Cold War period, Russia has been um, in need of uh, radical military reforms that would address uh, weapons modernization issues, as well as the lack of adequate military training um, in the Russian uh, conventional forces. Russia's military was also not adapted to fight contemporary wars. And since Putin's presidency, so in, since the beginning of the 2000s, uh, Russia's defense spending in real terms increased. And this allowed the Ministry of Defense to invest more in uh, military reforms. For example, in 2011, there was a significant uh, rearmament program that was initiated. It was called the State Arm Armament Program for 2020. And it envisioned about the replacement of about 45% of all of Russia's Navy and Army equipment. So it's a pretty significant um, overhaul. And um, for your listeners, um, it may be useful to also uh, recommend a few authors that I've read and I uh, usually reference when I talk about Russia's conventional capabilities. For example, Carolina Vendil Pellin, uh, Frederick Westerlund, as well as Richard Weiss and Paul Schwartz have written a lot on that issue, and their, their work, I think, is excellent. Um, overall, I think it's important to mention that Russia's conventional capabilities are by far superior to the conventional capabilities of Russia's neighbors. So Russia can claim regional status on the basis of its conventional forces, but conventional forces are by far inferior to those of NATO. So Russia cannot claim global status on the basis of its conventional capabilities. Therefore, Russia relies on its nuclear arsenal that is as large as that of the United States in the moment. And on the basis of this, Russia can claim parity with the United States. Okay. Um, so you, you said that kind of Russia's current nuclear capabilities are equivalent to the U.S. under the current START treaty. Yes. Okay. Um, so when you're talking about the evolution of Russian policies towards ballistic missile defense, you divide them into three distinct phases. Can you talk about what each phase is, what each phase is and kind of how each phase is distinctive? Sure. Um, I have decided to structure my book in three periods. So I look first at the period from 2000 to 2003, then from 2004 to 2008, and then from 2009 to 2014. And while I was conducting my research um, leading to the writing of this book, I realized that those were this is a logical structure to adopt for the book for two reasons. First of all, Russia's policy towards missile defense in Europe is different in each of those three periods. And second, the hierarchy of factors that shape Russia's policy on missile defense in those three periods also vary. So because of Russia's policy changes, as well as the factors that influence that I've decided to look at those three periods like that. Okay. So looking at the 2000 to 2003 period, what were the most important events that took place? Uh, from 2000 to uh, 2003, um, Russia's policy on missile defense um, was characterized by um, tolerance, and um, Russia ex didn't express significant opposition towards um, um, the idea that uh, the United States would deploy a third side in Europe, but the United States also hadn't announced that yet, but the United States left the ABM Treaty, which was quite a significant development. Um, Several times, uh, President Putin was on the record stating that um, Russia's, the, the U.S. Um, deployment of missile defense and the expansion of its national missile defense will not hinder the relationship um, between the United States and Russia. 
President Putin is also on the record saying that uh, in this period, that even if the United States deploys uh, expanded missile defense and deploys 100 interceptors, this will still not hinder um, the cooperation between the, the two countries and will not endanger, um, endanger uh, Russia's nuclear deterrence. Okay. And the, the ABM Treaty is very important for Russians, Russia's foreign policy and image. Can you uh, talk a little bit more about what the, the AD, ABM Treaty is and kind of what, what role it's played in U.S.-Russia relations? Certainly. So the ABM Treaty uh, was signed in 1972 by the United States and then the Soviet Union. And uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it continued to remain valid. And the treaty is important to Russia for two reasons. First of all, there is a security dimension. The treaty um, limited the number of missile defense systems that Moscow and Washington could deploy. And in this way, it ensured that there is no barrier that could protect against incoming missiles from each side. In this way, both states remained vulnerable to one another's nuclear attacks. And um, the concept of nuclear deterrence and the balance of um, uh, strategic stability was preserved. Therefore, Russia has often referred to the treaty as the cornerstone of strategic stability. Uh, so this is the security dimension. But there is also political dimension to the debate, especially in the case of uh, um, the Kremlin. Um, the treaty created a system of equality that placed Russia on equal footing with the United States. So the treaty was important for the Russia's, Russia's ability to claim a great power status. And um, in 2002, the United States unilaterally withdrew from the treaty. And ever since then, uh, the Russian leadership has referred to this move as a mistake. And the issue has still, 12 years later, is still a sensitive point in the Russian leadership. For example, Putin gave his annual address this year on the 4th of December. And in this annual address, after he, was, he talked about Ukraine and a few other issues, he mentioned a DABM treaty again. So 12 years later, he again I uh, decided to remind his audience that it was the United States that withdrew from the treaty unilaterally and that this endangers the strategic balance of forces. In your book, you write about how Russia has made specific claims that America's ballistic missile defense system poses a threat to Russian interests. And you analyze this in detail and explain why these claims are for the most part inaccurate. Can you talk a little bit more about the biggest problems with these claims? Yes, I, uh, this is exactly what I argue in the book. Um, since around 2004, Russia's leadership has claimed that the deployment of missile defense in Europe uh, would threaten Russia's nuclear deterrent and would present a threat to Russia's security. But when we examine the technical parameters of missile defense and Russia's nuclear arsenal, it becomes apparent that uh, missile defense really doesn't pose such a significant security threat to Russia. It doesn't pose a security threat now, and it will not pose a security threat even if missile defense in the future is expanded. Um, and this is the case for a variety of reasons. I have a chapter in which I, uh, in, I discuss those issues in details, but for example, Moscow has um, the ability to employ a variety of retaliatory measures and countermeasures that would guarantee the preservation of its nuclear deterrence. And such measures include um, decoys that could be mounted on warheads. Russia can also use its tactical nuclear weapons to target parts of the missile defense system. And if we only just look at the, um, the defensive capabilities of the proposed missile defense versus the offensive capabilities of Russia, it's also clear that Russia's nuclear deterrent is preserved. For example, in 2007, when the Bush administration for the first time proposed to deploy a third side in Europe, the Bush administration proposed to deploy only 10 interceptors. 
and theoretically, 10 interceptors can intercept exactly 10 strategic warheads. And this is only under the best conditions. Russia in this period had more than 3,100 strategic warheads. So you can clearly see that there is a big difference between 10 interceptors and 3,100 warheads. Uh, during the Obama administration, Russia still had a large nuclear arsenal of strategic warheads. Russia had about uh, 2,600 strategic warheads. And what's even more interesting is that in March of 2013, the Obama administration canceled phase four of the missile defense plan. Um, and this phase envisioned initially the, the deployment of interceptors that could potentially engage Russia's strategic warheads. But after the phase was canceled, now missile defense in Europe will have no capacity to intercept Russia's strategic warheads. So all of Russia's arsenal reported under the START Treaty is safe and sound, but Russia still continues to uh, express opposition towards the deployment of missile defense in Europe. So because of all these reasons, I think that Russia's security-based concerns are not necessarily justified. One of the most interesting phenomena that you study in your book is how Vladimir Putin was able to establish a power vertical over the military and military-industrial complex. Can you talk to us a little bit more about how Putin was able to establish his control over these institutions? Oh, yes, sure. Um, so first, it may be uh, useful to uh, remind our listeners and also ourselves what we mean by the power vertical. Uh, it's fairly well established in the literature that these are the series of reforms that the Kremlin introduced after the Beslan School massacre in 2004 that led to um, the centralization of power and the vertically structured state apparatus in which all units of government was subordinated to Vladimir Putin. So the power became in the hands of, was given in the hands of one man rather than the office. And Putin also tried to exert control over the military and specifically over the general staff and tried to um, position the defense ministry over the general staff. Um, and he did this with a series of administrative reforms as well as appointments. For example, in 2004, he introduced a series of laws that limited the powers of the general staff and turned it into um, a body that resembled more a department of the Ministry of Defense rather than an independent structure. Uh, for example, the chief of the general staff was no longer going to be appointed by the president. Uh, he was going to be appointed by the Minister of Defense. Also, the chief of the general staff lost the prerogative to speak directly to Putin, so he had to first ask for the approval of the Minister of Defense before speaking to Putin. Also, um, Putin uh, replaced the then chief of the general staff, Anatoly Kvashnin, with the more agreeable Yuri Balyevsky. And um, Kvashnin was known uh, for his criticism towards the political leadership of the country. And uh, this replacement also demonstrated, at least analysts interpreted as a demonstration, and I, and I agree with this, as a demonstration of Putin's control over the military. Um, at the same time, I think it's interesting to note that um, he, Putin didn't fire Kvashnin, but he sent him to be the presidential representative to the Siberian Federal District, which I think you'll agree is not uh, necessarily a promotion, but he didn't decide to fire him and still uh, kept him employed, which I thought was very interesting. Um, also in 2007, Putin employed a civilian um, to be in charge of the defense ministry, so the defense minister became Anatoly Serjukov, although many in the military bureaucracy and the political elite protested against disappointment. 
So Putin's ability to circumvent all of this criticism and still appoint Serjukov was another interpreted as another demonstration of Putin's control over the, uh, over Russia's military. Um, and with uh, yeah, so I think that those um, those arguments and those dynamics could explain or at least demonstrate how Putin managed to assert certain control over the military. At the same time, I just want to note here that although Putin managed to exert um, to um, assert his formal control over the military, there's insufficient publicly available data to judge whether he also managed to assert complete de facto control over the military. And there are a few examples where we could see that um, his control might not have been so absolute. For example, um, the military might have influenced Putin's decision not to consider any modifications to the ABM treaty. Initially, before the U.S. withdrew from the treaty, uh, it um, offered uh, the Kremlin certain modifications that would allow the United States to deploy a third side in Europe, a third missile defense side in Europe, but still preserve the ABM treaty. And initially, the Kremlin expressed certain interest in discussing those modifications. But after a few meetings with the military leadership, Putin then decided not to consider modifying the treaty. And um, certain evidence indicates that the military might have influenced his decision in this particular context. That leads us to the next question I wanted to ask, namely, what factors do you identify as being most important in shaping Russia's ballistic missile defense policies? So I look at international as well as domestic factors. And at the international level, I think that there are three main factors. Uh, those are the Kremlin's capacity to project influence and power in its own region, um, NATO's behavior in the post-Soviet space, uh, which specifically um, refers to NATO's disorder expansion, as well as the overall state of U.S.-Russian relations. And domestically, as you mentioned, one of the, the important actors is the military. Uh, the other two are Russia's political leadership itself and then the military-industrial complex. And each of these factors influence Russia's position on missile defense in Europe with various intensity uh, in the last uh, 14 to 15 years. As an aside, can you tell us a little bit more about the phenomenon of Russian Orthodox priests consecrating missiles? Yes, this is actually, I'm really glad you picked up on this reference because it was so enjoyable to me to research this particular phenomenon. And I think I referred to it only in one part of the book. I just described it in a few paragraphs. So um, while I was watching a Russian TV coverage on missile defense, I came across a televised consecration of a Russian missile. And in, in this ceremony, a priest uh, used holy water and a green branch to basically um, consecrate the missile. And I find this procedure rather unusual for the church to be involved in and decided to research it further. And it turns out that the Russian Orthodox Church, which is also referred to as the Rock, has been involved in uh, Russia's military modernization for a while now and has been consecrating missiles at least since 1998. This is not a very cheap procedure at all. Each consecration costs about $4,500. So it is a pricey ceremony. And I think that there are two reasons why the, why, why the Kremlin may be performing um, these ceremonies and paying for them. First, I think this is a strategy for the Kremlin to try to gain the support of the Russian Orthodox population um, for Russia's modernization efforts. Um, I, I um, found a survey uh, from 2007 that indicated that about 75% of all Russians considered themselves followers of uh, the Orthodox Church. So seeing the Orthodox Church being involved in um, in missile launches may be a way for these people, uh, for the Kremlin to try to gain the approval of these people for the policy for, and for the military reform. 
the second reason why uh, the Kremlin may be uh, involved in the consecration of missiles is it may appear, appear a bit odd to the rational thinker, to be honest. Um, I think that consecrating or rather not consecrating missiles may be a way to explain missile test failures um, by using divine intervention rather than science. Um, for example, it's not a secret that Russia's missile tests have been plagued by failures in the last 15 years, and missile tests are costly, and this is certainly a humiliation uh, to the Kremlin and to the political leadership of uh, the Russian Federation. And I came upon an article in which a priest claimed that um, the missiles that were successful in their tests and that hit their targets successfully were exactly the ones that were consecrated, and the ones that failed their tests were not consecrated. So although this sounds very logical, to some members of the Russian population that are more superstitious, this can sound this can sound like um, a reasonable and convincing explanation. So in any case, the government's endorsement of this fusion of religion and military modernization is very interesting, and I hope to see more scholarship on the issue soon. The issue of public support is an interesting one, and it brings me to the next question I wanted to ask which is specifically how Putin has used missile defense policies to garner popular support among segments of the Russian population. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that's worked thus far? Uh, sure. Uh, for example, um, I, can, I can give you one example of how Putin used missile defense as a part of his presidential campaign when he needed to uh, gain popular support in 2012. So uh, in his presidential campaign, he didn't really um, participate in many debates, but he published seven articles in various Russian newspapers uh, that touched upon important uh, issues of Russia's domestic and foreign policy. And in article number six, he talked about national um, national security. And in this article, he also referred to the deployment of uh, missile defense in Europe. And he, um, again, used the very familiar to all Russians' logic in this period that as missile defense in Europe is being deployed at least partially against Russia, then Russia is obliged to strengthen its uh, nuclear forces in order to protect itself from uh, the threat of missile defense. And this policy would entail um, investing more in weapons modernization in Russia's air and space defense forces that were recently created, as well as uh, in Russia's um, military industrial sector. And such policies could be very appealing to the part of the population of Russian voters that have that has a, a military outlook. Uh, these people would include um, the population that works in the um, military bureaucracy, as well as the population that's employed in the military industrial sector. And according to some analysis, these people may constitute about 40% of Russia's voting population. So you see it's a quite a significant portion of the population, and it's wise to try to appeal to them and gain their support. In your book, you state that Russia's positions toward ballistic missile defense have often been paradoxical. Can you elaborate a little bit on why you believe this is the case? Sure. So I identify two reasons why Russia's position has been paradox- why Russia's position on missile defense has been paradoxical. First, um, we already discussed uh, Russia's nuclear capabilities. And I believe that the, uh, Russia possesses um, enough nuclear capabilities and guarantees that would um, ensure that Russia's nuclear deterrence is preserved, even if missile defense is built, in Europe is built, and even if it's enlarged. Um, second, Russia has often changed its position on missile defense in Europe, and I think that constitutes a second paradox 
in Russia's policy on missile defense in the last 15 years. For example, we already discussed that from 2000 to 2003, uh, the Kremlin expressed relative tolerance towards the deployment of missile defense and the expansion of uh, U.S. missile defense. Um, and there, Putin has been on the record many times saying that. But from 2004 onwards, Russia changed its stance and it adopted a much more confrontational position. And the intensity of Russia's confrontational position since 2004 also varied. So, for example, in 2007, Russia was very hostile. Um, you probably have also read yourself Putin's speech um, at the Munich conference, security conference uh, given in February 2007. Putin, in the speech, again refers to missile defense and says that it may lead to an inevitable arms race. A few months later, Putin compared, for example, the deployment of missile defense in Europe to the Cuban Missile Crisis between the United States and the Soviet Union, basically hinting that the deployment of missile defense in Europe can lead to a nuclear confrontation between the United States and Russia, which is a pretty significant comparison to make. However, with the advent of the Obama administration, uh, the Kremlin again um, reduced its criticism and in 2009 and 2010, um, the, the Russian leadership was more willing to explore um, different uh, options for cooperation on missile defense. But by the end of 2011, Russia again reverted back to a more confrontational approach. So all these changes in Russia's position, I believe, constitute a second paradox that I tried to explain in my book. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about how Russia's policies towards ballistic missile defense have changed during the last period you identify? During the reset? Yes. Uh, so during the reset, this is exactly in the period of the beginning of the Obama administration. So um, Russia uh, subdued its criticism on missile defense and was even willing to consider uh, different options for cooperation with NATO and missile defense. At this stage, um, the United States, um, the missile defense that the United States wanted to deploy in Europe was also endorsed by all NATO members. So it was a NATO um, initiative. And the NATO states discussed with Russia the possibility to um, uh, create a missile defense in which Russia can also participate. And Russia was willing to engage in those discussions. Um, Medvedev himself proposed uh, the so-called sectoral approach to missile defense in which also Russia will um, coordinate its efforts on a missile defense infrastructure uh, with the Obama administration. But then by the end of 2011, Russia again became more hostile towards missile defense in Europe and has been much harder to negotiate on any sort of cooperation on the issue. Could you discuss a little bit how ballistic missile defense policies have played into the current crisis in Ukraine for Russia? Absolutely. So um, Russia, throughout the crisis in Ukraine, Russia has continued to express open opposition to the missile defense project in Europe. And it has even started to refer to it as a global U.S. project, again, ignoring the fact that at least its um, uh, missile defense components in Europe are actually uh, under NATO in the moment, not only under the um, command of the United States. And the issue has continued to be a sensitive one for Putin, and he even mentioned it in his annual address on the 4th of December, he again reiterated that missile defense poses a threat to Russia, and he also said that it poses a threat not only to Russia, but to the world as a whole. And um, he returned to, returned to the very familiar statement that in order for Russia to neutralize uh, the threat from missile defense, uh, Russia will have to guarantee its country's defense. 
And this most likely uh, refers to continuing to invest in military modernization and military reform. What are the events and factors that make the third phase that you identify distinctive from the first two in the evolution of Russia's policies towards ballistic missile defense? So the second period was from 2004 to 2008, and the third period started with the advent of the Obama administration in 2009. So um, I believe that the change in the Obama administration was very important in this period of transition, and also the Obama administration slightly modified the missile defense system in Europe. Uh, it introduced the so-called um, face adaptive approach or European-based adaptive approach, also refers to as um, EPA. And um, Russia was um, more willing to consider cooperation, I believe also because of the, the reset, the introduction of reset, and the possibility for cooperation between the United States and Russia overall. So I think this is one of the most significant factors that affected uh, Russia's decision to be more tolerant towards the deployment of missile defense in Europe in this period. But since, again, since... Um, 2011, Russia again became more hostile and less cooperative um, on missile defense in Europe. And um, I believe that the reason for this is domestic concerns within Russia. You yourself have probably read a lot about um, uh, protests started uh, emerging in Russia, Putin's approval ratings were reduced, as well as uh, there were also economic problems that um, necessitated a more, um, a more assertive approach on missile defense in Europe. What type of reforms have been undertaken by Russia in order to counteract the threat that supposedly is posed by America's ballistic missile defense programs in Europe? Um, so Russia, in order to tackle missile defense in Europe, Russia has primarily invested not in its own, own missile defense, but in the, the improvement of its strategic arsenal. So um, Russia links the ability to overcome missile defense in Europe uh, with improving its own offensive capabilities. So uh, the reforms have substantially influenced Russia's um, uh, offensive capabilities because Russia is investing more in um, improving its nuclear forces. And it has also built the so-called air and um, space defense forces and is investing a lot of money. Uh, according to some analysts, about 40% of the recent um, program uh, armament program until 2020 would go to just the air and space forces. Thank you very much for talking with us about your book. Before we wrap up, can you talk a little bit about the research that you're currently undertaking? Sure. Um, I'm looking in the moment at Russia's policy towards the EU in the last 10 years, and I um, am also uh, conducting research um, on Russia's relations with Russia's Orthodox Church. Apart from just consecrating missiles, I'm also interested in the other areas in which the Russian Orthodox Church is supporting the Russian leadership. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Biliana. Thank you.